Welcome to No Small Jobs. I am your host, Paul Nguyen. Uh, this is the very first podcast. This is very exciting. And I have reeled in a very good and old friend of mine. His name is Reese. So, Reese, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm an occupational therapist and I also manage a specialist health service. Cool. So, for those out there who don't know what an occupational therapist is, can you tell us what you do? Essentially, occupational therapy is when a person uh, is unable to function in their day-to-day life um, due to injury, illness, um, disability. Uh, We help them. We do rehabilitation activities or we prescribe equipment, do home modifications. Um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite broad. Occupational therapy touches many different areas. And so what, uh, so you talked about people who, who have needs in what other sort of fields would people encounter someone in your profession? So occupational therapists tend to, uh, work in, oh gosh, very different. So occupational health and safety is a area which occupational therapists might go into. Hmm. Um, also other areas might be things like case management. Um, so more psychosocial um, support, mm. um, mental health. Uh, they tend to do a lot of support around people's managing of function. Um, so although a person might be able-bodied to, to be able to do something, um, because of their mental health, they might not be able to, um, and other areas are things like oh, vehicle assessments. So seeing if someone's safe to drive, um, and functional assessments. So things, uh, that are like, uh, wheelchair mobility, um, able to manage in their bathroom, um, to shower, dress themselves in other areas. Because really, the term occupational therapy isn't particularly accurate, isn't it? Because you hear the word occupation and you think work. And it does obviously come across in terms of work, but actually it's more about the occupation of living and, and, hmm. and sort of day-to-day life. Yeah, everything we do is an occupation. Sleep is an occupation. It's anything that occupies our time. Um, so... It is all functional based. Um, we don't necessarily look at um, whilst we account for the health or, or the maybe the organic causes to why someone's functions impaired. We look at every aspect of a person's life and even look at things like their relationships and support networks and so forth. Mm. And so you've obviously mentioned that OT can be fairly broad, but you actually specialize in a particular area, don't you? Yeah, so I specialize in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, that's my specialty area and particularly um, wheelchair and seating assessments, mm. um, which crosses both occupational therapy and physiotherapy. Mm. And how do you think that distinct, uh, that sort of the, the working with people with uh, uh, intellectual disabilities is distinct from sort of the more broader aspects of OT? So when understanding someone with intellectual disability, we need to understand that they may not necessarily understand uh, the problem. Um, Like you or I could explain to each other the reason that you might not be able to do something is because of pain or and this is the movement that you do that aggravates it. Someone with an intellectual disability doesn't necessarily comprehend that. So we tend to work with what is their strengths and we focus on their strengths. We also use things like... um, their likes and dislikes to try and engage them into their rehabilitation um, or to engage them into a new activity and a new way of doing things. Um, And also we use their behaviour to help us understand what is they might actually be communicating to us. Um, So they can't necessarily respond and tell us whether it's good or bad. So we might have to interpret their body language or their behaviour. And we also often rely a lot on their support network around them. So uh, whether it be family members or paid or unpaid carers 
Um, so we tend to we tend to enlist a lot of support to get it through, um, but it is a very much with the person at the center, and then working the way around. Okay, so how did you discover this field back when you were in high school or when you were thinking about your uni preferences? Oh gosh. Um, so for me personally, uh, two things as to why I've kind of ended up into where I've ended up. Number one was when I was about ten years old. Um, I took a un- I took a bit more of an understanding around disability um, with just a life event that happened. Um, when uh, out doing a grocery shopping with my mom, um, someone with a disability wanted to take a chip that was in my hand um, and obviously quite frightened, my mom encouraged me to share with a person with disability. And there was a woman with Down syndrome, I still remember. Uh, so I saw the barriers of st- stigma starting to get broken down from then on. Um, and then when I was 15, uh, a family friend had a s- severe stroke um, and w- we all thought that he was unfortunately not going to make it, but he did, he pulled through. Um, but unfortunately that meant that he had a significant, what we saw call hemiplegia. So a weakness and high tones on one side of his body to watch him engage in his rehabilitation. And the day that he made a meat pie for the first time, the pride that he had in just accomplishing that task it really moved me. And in fact, it made me want to be an enabler. Um, So that's when I learned that occupational therapy could actually do a lot to help people achieve goals. And that was really important to me. But how did you discover that particular profession? I mean, you know, for for most people, the the professions they learn are from uh, exposure to things, you know, TV or what family members do. Was there an OT in the family or did you sort of meet someone in hospital? How did you come about this profession at all? Well, it was from that experience of watching our family friend achieve something that I actually learned what occupational therapy was. Because all of a sudden my my intrigue suddenly pricked up and I was wondering what occupational therapy actually was. So then I started actually doing some of my own investigation. Uh, so I started looking online and going to getting, getting more in touch with the universities. So as the usual pathway with school is, we start to go to open days and so forth. So it was through that process that I actually learned what occupational therapy was um, by attending a couple of open days. And it was definitely then I knew that that was the path for me. Okay. So um, what's involved in studying a photo? Like how long is it and all that? There are different courses. Um, so I did an undergraduate degree in occupational therapy, a bachelor degree. So it was four years for me. Um, courses vary from uh, four years here in Australia for undergraduate, but over in the UK, for example, it's three years. So it's, it's differing depending on where you study it. We also now have a Masters of Occupational Therapy program that a lot of universities have introduced, and that is usually after someone may have done an undergraduate in a health science of some sort. Um, They then go on to do the two-year Masters of Occupational Therapy. Okay. Um, And so after once you've got your, your degree, what happens after that? So once you've got your degree, you have the fun job, like any other professional, trying to get the postgraduate positions. Mm. Um, when I, I was lucky when I studied occupational therapy, I was the second cohort for the university I studied at. And we were one of three universities um, who offered occupational therapy to Victoria. So when I did graduate, um, I 
personally took some time off to sort of, I guess, process the whole experience of having studied through school and university continuous. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get a position with my, my final placements organization. Um, so doing that was, yeah, it was, it was a link into the field of disability. It wasn't necessarily the type of disability that I was particularly um, interested in um, and that I was interested in doing when I was doing my major in disability studies while I was at uni. Um, but yeah, I was, it was definitely a good experience still. So, so just sort of back, back into the university thing. So within your particular course, you chose a, a major or like you had a major subject that you focused on during your studies there, right? You had choices. You could do electives. Um, and some people just chose very different electives, um, that maybe may not have strung together. And there was also a disability studies course, a three year course that was offered at the university that I studied at. Um, and I chose to do certain units to make up what would be the disability studies um, as a sort of major to it. It didn't get recognised because um, only psychology, if you majored in psychology, you had to do, I think, an additional two units post the four years of everything else mm. um, to then have officially majored in disability um, in psychology. Um, but yeah, for disability studies, there was no like major that you could attach to your degree. So I just chose to choose all my electives in disability studies. Okay. And so did you sort of once, once you'd finished all that, did you have an idea about, I mean, you obviously knew the field of work, but do you know what jobs were out there or what jobs would, um, I guess, meet your career goals? Yeah, I did because um, while I was studying at university, I also worked as um, a disability support worker. Uh, so doing that profession since I was in my second year of university, uh, I had the opportunity to already get the exposure to occupational therapists coming in to see the clients that I t- took care of, um, to understand what they did a bit more. Um, so I, I did know that that was the era, that was the path I kind of wanted to get into. Um, but I think also... I had other career goals, which were to do a bit more of a wider experience to broaden my knowledge and skill um, before I concentrated too much in the area as well. I mean, so sort of com- comparing my personal experience, so I, I'm, I'm a GP by training for those out there listening. Um, and so <clears throat> with this, within medicine particularly, there's a very clear um, line of achievement. So you sort of, you do your studies, internship, residency, registrar, and then you're a consultant. That's sort of the end point, you know. Um, it's sort of the point where you reach. And then from there, you can choose to go private, public, specialised, whatever. But I mean, as from what you're saying with OT, um, it, that's not necessarily the case. Once you have the degree, you essentially have the, not the luxury, but you have the option to be able to do a variety of things. But there's no one end point that everyone necessarily meets. Would that be right? Yes and no. I think that um, when you do graduate, you do have a lot of different opportunities. Um, If you start your career path in a certain area, certain field of occupational therapy, depending on how long you are in that field, it's very hard to break out of it because that's your whole experience and you may move up. We have gradings. um, So you may move up grades within that field and then to start a new field would mean having to go back so some, a lot of occupational therapists tend to stick within one field or they do something a bit more broader, like working in hospitals and they might do rotation positions and things like that. Um, but once, once you know what you wanted to do, um, you tend to then concentrate on it. So when I 
did my postgraduate position. Um, I was very fortunate to have a very good uh, senior occupational therapist who advised me that to do it only for a year to two years. Um, and then if I wanted to not make my career in that field, to go and explore other options. And I had already planned to do some overseas experience as well. So having that in mind, it was part of the sort of process for me. So uh, you just said you, you went overseas for a bit. Tell us a bit more about that. So I did what a lot of occupational therapists do. Um, we almost sometimes jokingly call it as part of the journey, but um, I think nowadays maybe it's becoming less common. But back when I was postgraduate, going over to the UK used to be a big thing, um, or Canada, um, because we had courses. Our course was recognised, Our sorry, our, when I say our course, our degrees were recognised internationally, so we didn't necessarily have to do additional education to go and work in those particular countries. Um, so I went off to the UK um, to also give me myself an opportunity to travel, um, but also to gain some new experiences. And it's really important from as an occupational therapist to have life experience because you're trying to relate to someone about their daily life. Um, and if you don't necessarily have an empathy and understanding of what someone's daily life might be like, uh, it's going to be very challenging to provide them a good holistic care. Um, so for me, it was about going over, working in the hospital systems over there, um, learning that sort of skill um, to understand a bit more around orthopedics particularly. And I was fortunate enough to get a position doing orthopedic trauma as well. Um, so a lot of um, returned soldiers that had had injuries um, was part of my role as well. So learning a bit more about trauma, learning a bit more about that um, orthopedic, the function, what it meant, wheelchair and seating was the first time I started to get exposure to wheelchair and seating, um, wound care, um, different things, um, people losing upper limb function because they may have lost an arm or something like that. So it, it broadened my knowledge of how function can be impacted by the body um, so when I came back, oh, and I also did oncology, um, orthopedics while I was over there. So started to also see what the impact of um, disease could also be on the person's function. Mm. Um, so it was really important to me. Um, so when I came back, I utilized a lot of that experience now um, in, in my day-to-day practice, really. Do you think it's uh, obviously... The, the more holistic approach is important uh, from, a, from a philosophical point of view, particularly working in healthcare. But do you think that working overseas particularly was a, an essential part of uh, maybe, you know, getting jobs or, or sort of improving your ability to get a job? I think it did to <clears throat> some extent. I think when I came back and people saw military orthopedic trauma on my resume, it did prick up some ears and people were very keen to know what I'd done. Um, because it was just something that we don't necessarily do here. In, well, if you did, it's not really something you hear often of in the field of occupational therapy. Um, but I think also the other added bonus was the cultural experience. So you, so you started to get exposure to what it was like submersing into someone else's culture, understanding how the impact was, different systems, and how that affects how you can practice and things like that. So... Working overseas definitely opened my eyes to different things, um, but I also learned a lot from those experiences. So when I came back again and as I've moved up my both my roles as um, specialising in occupational therapy, but also my role leading a team now and also working in research, 
understanding about different organizations and systems and how they interact um, has really opened up my eyes a bit more about how we can approach things as well to do efficiency um, in our care provision, but also making sure that we do provide a good quality care. Hmm. And so, so speaking of sort of your, your position now, are you are you happy with where your career is? Like, could you see yourself doing this particular job long term? It's hard to say. I'm 35, and I've had a 12 year career so far, and I feel like I've jumped a lot into different things. Well, in, interestingly, the last um, statistic, and I hope I don't mention this in every podcast, but it will become relevant every time. The last statistic in 2018 said that the average Australian will change their jobs every three years. and Well, sorry, will change their jobs 50, 15 to 20 times in their lifetime. Um, and an av- the average length of time they'll stay in any one job is three years. And obviously, th- that that kind of average probably doesn't reflect every industry. If you broke it down in different industries, it probably would vary. So it wouldn't be unusual for um, for you to want to change jobs. But again, if we look at the generation above us, um, or certainly the generation before that, it was very common for someone to stay with the same company in the same job for 30, 40, 50 years. They'd give out watches and awards and all those other fancy stuff to say, yay for loyalty. Um, that's just that. That's not necessarily our generation, and so I guess the question is why? Like, why is it that we are changing jobs? And so I guess for you, what is, what would be your motivation? What's your thinking about you know your job and and where you see yourself? Yeah, I think um, this is a very complex question um, to answer. Um, I'm all about the complexity. I'm a very complex thank, person. Thank yeah. you very, thank you very much for that. I yeah. work with complex people all the time. Um, <laughs> So I guess when I think about what it is for me and why I changed positions, again, I think uh, it comes down to the person. I definitely have a lot of um, co- uh, well peers that I went to university with and who have tended to stay in their positions um, for various reasons. Some um, have just really enjoyed their position and they just don't necessarily have many um, in- much interest in changing. Um, others have gone on to do things like have a family and so it's a stability uh, for them is their employment. Um, and just before we move away from that, do you think that OT is a good field for that kind of stability and consistency? I think it definitely can offer it in the health systems, but I, I think that that can be for a lot of positions in health or, or more government public systems, um, there's stabilities there. I think in a privatised uh environment i don't think that that stability can necessarily exist because privatized but we're relying on a certain stream of income and that requires certain kpis and targets etc whereas i think in a public system that um that same motivation when you get block funded doesn't necessarily exist um so i think that it's easy in the public system to actually say that that complacency with it should is there um and that's fine i think everyone is entitled to what is comfortable for them um some people are cut out for private some people aren't and some people enjoy that sort of that that um expectation of what comes with working in public systems not to say that they don't necessarily work hard in public systems either i think that there's a lot of clinicians that work very very hard in public system and because of the demand um on our public system by the uh, for healthcare particularly um they've run off their feet and they're trying to get patients sorted and out the door um, back home and making sure they're safe and get all their needs met. So there are, I'm not saying they don't work hard, but they just might be very happy with that. And then they come in. I know friends of mine um, who come in do three days a week. 
they, that's what they do, and then they the rest of the week they they've got their role as parent or if their kids are at school, you know, other things in life. So taking care of a house if they've got a family and things like that. So it's it's very much that it's not um, it's kind of unfortunate, but that that occupational therapy tends to be a lot more female gender based, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know that's not unfortunate in the sense of um, there's a gender in a there. I feel like there is a gender inequality in, in occupational therapy sometimes in that reason. Um, but I, I think that occupational therapy is also a, a profession where you can have that um, work-life balance, mm. I think. And I, I think that that's a great thing about the profession um, as opposed to privatized. Sure. So, so back, back to you though, as you said, you know, for a lot of people, there is that stability, but in terms of you, what do you see yourself doing over the coming years? Right now I need to learn a new, um, a new t- skill of managing, uh, a team. Um, it's something that I've always done in bits and pieces and either I've began to manage a team, but I've not been very much high up the hierarchy. So a lot of that more upper, um, management responsibility around funding and those kind of things have not really been as important to me um, as part of my roles. Um, but now they are, so I'm very much more across the business models and systems and how they work in efficiency building. Um, so I think right now there's a lot of uh, opportunity for me to learn a new skill, um, which is always something that keeps me interested. I like to learn. If I start to get bored, then maybe I might start to think, oh, well, what's the future for me? But at least in my research position, I've always, I've done it for three years now where I transitioned away from just doing clinical practice into research as a career change. Um, still within the same field as disabilities, but changing that. And I still feel like I'm the new kid on the block and I'm still learning something new every day. So I think that, um, I don't see myself necessarily changing anytime soon. Mm. Um, but who knows? We see what the future holds. And I guess, as, as you said, there's nothing in particular you're working towards, is there? I mean, you're just sort of going towards whatever job interests you. Yeah, I think when we're, definitely when we finish university particularly, we have a pressure to start to figure out what, what is that we're going to start to sell ourselves in. So we need to master our craft. And there's a lot of pressure to do that. Um, and then to get yourself on the right pathway because we start as we start to age, suddenly those life milestones... Um, start to creep in those expectations that are put upon us to buy a house um start a family um begin starting even planning for retirement at different points um so i think that there's uh, a a pressure that exists but i think once you sort of almost i again I, i don't know if it's for everyone some people really like to shake things up all the time I can't say I'm definitely that person, um, but definitely now that I'm in my 30s, I feel like I don't want to change too quickly because I want to have that work-life balance with my relationships and my my lifestyle and my family and so forth. So it's it's important to me, I think, now in my life that I have a bit more stability in my roles um, rather than trying to chase the new thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess... 
sort of uh, sort of talking about new skills I, I, again because I, I everything's about me i um so i know within within um gp particularly there is a, a fairly consistent expectation that once you've uh, reached consultant level as a gp the next step is to own your own clinic for, for a lot of people that's what it is some people of course yes as you said you know with work-life balance their priority isn't about um <clears throat> isn't about being uh, isn't succeeding from a financial point of view it's more just about having the the hours that you can select so that you can you can um, prioritize the other things in your life but i know certainly i've been told uh from a, uh, financially it is the best way to you know make the most money is your own, your own clinic but it is a completely different skill you don't get taught about practice management and about item numbers and all the other businessy things so i guess I guess my question to you is, Is does the move away from clinical practice, I mean, I know you're still practicing as an OT clinically, but does the move away from it, is that, is that something that you've wanted? Is it something you, you saw for yourself? No. Um, I think if you, if you had to ask me the question, gosh, even six years ago, five, five six years ago, my, my intention was to almost... I, felt like I was almost finding my stable point and that my focus started to actually become more about my personal life because I was starting to solidify a relationship and did I want a family and all the rest of it. Um, so I think that I was at that point, but then I suddenly was figuring out where I sat because I was starting to get bored as well. Mm. <laughs> so I was showing up to work Monday to Friday, nine to five kind of situation. And I've, could do my job very like well. It sounds very egotistical, say very well, yeah. um, but I wasn't. Um, I wasn't incompetent at my job. That's good, um, bare minimum. Good. <laughs> yeah. um, I could do my my job fairly fairly well, and efficiently, and, and that was the bit that interested me the most is that finding the efficiencies. And once I started to find myself almost getting stale and stagnant, that's when. I had to, and then I was getting pushed as, as often happens. If you seem competent, they start to like to eye you off for management in, in some organizations. And that particularly was in my organization that tend to be at the, to my organization at the time. So I had a choice and I chose not to pursue management. Um, I got offered a, a leadership course and I just turned it down and said that I would actually prefer to go into research because I wanted to improve clinical practice. I, was doing the same thing all the time, but I was watching my colleagues around me not necessarily as interested in picking up that same um, desire. There were some that did and some that didn't, and I was more concerned about the clients that we were there to do, to help, especially the vulnerable group, um, which was people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So I wanted to make sure we had a very good practice model, that we had a good scope of practice as well that met the need of the, the patient or the clients that we saw. Um, but it didn't necessarily always align. Um, so I chose research as some, uh, an avenue for me to start to explore and learn and then to promote. Um, and that's when I learned that there was actually not a lot of research that happened in my particular area of interest. And so I wanted to be a contributor to that. Okay, let's uh, let's steer away a little bit from OT particularly, but let's say let's go back to when you were <clears throat> when you're 18 and you're applying to university. Let's say you didn't get into OT, just for whatever reason they didn't have the spots, you didn't get the marks. What do you think you would have done? Mm, what would I have done if I didn't get into OT? Um, that's a really difficult question because I hadn't I hadn't made a plan. I hadn't made a plan B. 
I'm sure I would have come up with something very quickly um, once I got my scores and realized it wasn't, op- it wasn't an option for me at all. Um, I was fortunate enough to have it as an option, but I guess if I didn't, I probably would have considered um, degrees like psychology or even still probably not too much psychology. I probably used it as stepping stones or gone and started a health sciences degree mm-hmm. um, with the intention of switching. Okay. Um, so, but I, I didn't have a plan B. <laughs> I mean, did you did you ever have a, <clears throat> I guess, like an alternate dream career? Because I, I know for me, so when, because uh, for some reason this conversation comes a lot, I think maybe I'm at an age when a lot of, we're all kind of thinking about our careers and whether this is what we want to do. I think, uh, I remember on my VTAG list, because, you know, you had to have a list of, I think it was 10 or something. My first two, of course, med, and then biomed sci to try and get into med. Um, but then my third, my fourth and fifth preferences actually were writing. They were, I can't remember what they call it, it's communications and something. Um, but, but, you know, completely left a field. I even considered journalism at one point but i didn't realize what i needed to do in journalism like yeah, there was a the jet test that you had to do beforehand so completely different from what i'd intended and i think part of me never took it seriously it was always like oh yeah maybe i might kind of do that thing um <clears throat> so so you know was there ever anything yeah did you, did you ever have this sort of dream job where if you thought well if i you know if i didn't need to have the skill to do it i'd love to be able to do this thing yeah. Um, well, I, my first comment is you would have made a fantastic writer. You're very good at writing. So <laughs> I'll you. give you that compliment. You should have, you could have pursued that as well. Maybe, maybe. Um, I mean, look, if, if I was being completely honest with myself, I think my dream, like my fantasy thing would be a singer, you know, but, uh, but I'm definitely terrible at that. So that's probably... <laughs> Neither of us can carry tune. Let's be real. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, it's like screaming cats. Um, <laughs> so I would, I would say if I, if I had a fantasy job oh gosh i i think i probably have fantasy jobs like everyone else probably everyone probably wanted to do something that made them famous like singing or acting or i think i particularly like drama when i was at school I, I very much enjoyed the subject and i did it only as a as the one subject that could be like a fun subject for me to do i think everything else was so focused on what i needed to do to get the grades to get into occupational therapy that drama was the only subject that i could do that was um something i was still interested in um but as my my dad said to me that if i wanted a career as a waiter um (laughs) i should choose drama um your dad was very practical like that very practical and and as you were saying the you know the general and if anything my dad was two generations before us (laughs) um he was an older dad but um yeah i i think that that mentality of you you know my parents had also made an active decision for us that they want us to give us a good education to be able to get a tertiary degree. And that was important to them. So I think had I not gotten a tertiary degree, I would have been in big trouble. Um, (laughs) So I I don't think I really had much of a choice in that matter. Fair enough. We could have been professional waiter. Why not? Why not? If they're going to kick you out anyway, you might as well earn some sort of living. I can, I can barely carry anything in my hands without (laughs) dropping it. I can't even carry three pints from a pub. So that's only because you're drunk. Well, I haven't already had yeah. three pints previously. So just yeah, those really three pints were for me. I just drank them at the bar before I came. Stop carrying them. Yeah, that no, I I really I'm not skilled in that way, <laughs> and I forget everything. So if someone told me they're older, they'll probably get something completely different. I'll tell them they could just have the pancakes. <laughs> 
Um, all right. So, knowing what you know now is um, ha- sort of have- having had a bit of a fairly varied career going overseas and, and all that, would you have done anything differently? Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a person that doesn't like to live life with any regrets. I think that um, you literally do have one life to live. So, I, I don't know if I necessarily have things I would do differently because everything thing if I had have chosen to do it differently would have resulted in a different path for me. And How I'm, very zen of you. I know. Um yeah. <laughs> just just uh just call me Dalai Lama. Um <laughs> but no I I think that the only thing that I probably would have liked to have done is I would have liked to have spent more time overseas working, I think. Mm. Um but maybe trying somewhere different. Um I maybe have done a, a year in Canada or something like that after the UK or spent, you know, some extra time in the UK. Um, I was very undecided, but then had I not done that, I wouldn't have met my partner and have the life I have now. So I think that, every, yeah, that would probably be the only thing that I would have done differently, but in a way I'm glad I didn't because I've still got the life I've got now. So don't really regret that. Is it some? Is that something you could pick up later on in life? Is it something you could do do again? Well, part of the the appeal, not the appeal, but part of the um, bonus that comes out of doing research is you still get to travel a little bit um, to for conferences and things like that. But also included is you get to meet people and you get to start to learn about what happens where they're based. So, you know, whether they're based in, and particularly in our, in my field, um, if they're based in Scandinavia and, or if they're based in the UK, Canada, US, um, you start to learn a bit about their system. So would I have liked to have worked under those systems? Well, I feel like I kind of know it anyway, because I'm working with people or talking to people, trying to, um, understand their research based under their systems and whether we can learn from that. So I, I kind of feel that in a way I, I get a, a bit of an experience anyway. Um, plus I think, you know, I get paid well enough here to travel. So it's always a bonus. Yes. Money is always good. Yes. Um, all right. So to finish off, do you have any pieces of advice for people either um, thinking of or about to enter the field of OT? Um, I think that the field of OT, it's a constant changing landscape. I think that we've got so many systems now currently being reformed here in Australia that if someone was going into OT, I would, I wouldn't, um, I would make sure that they understood the systems they were going to enter when we, when my cohort and even the last, you know, before some for the last maybe three years, um, everyone prior to that time who had completed OT, we knew the system that we were going to finish in. It was the system we had learnt at uni that we were going to end up in. So we kind of knew it. Whereas now with the introduction of My Age Care and NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, it has had a, a massive effect on on those reforms. Had a massive effect on on occupational therapy, particularly because the NDIS is pretty much the world of occupational therapy, almost because it's it's very function based. So um, it's it's such a but it's it's a privatized market again. So 
then if you're on the health side of it, that interface between health and disability is can be quite confusing and it's also quite challenging now um, for, for occupational therapists. Um, I think also with my aged care and the reforms that have come from my aged care um, and obviously the Royal Commission into Aged Care Services and the impact that will have on service delivery, um, I think will again, it will influence how the systems work. So I think those entering now won't necessarily know what it will be like for them when they finish uni because they still don't know what these the, we still haven't seen the 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 settle um we haven't seen it all settle now from the reforms um so when we talk about these reforms we refer to them like medicare and that took about five to ten years for that system to finally settle so i think occupational therapists now thinking of or sorry people wanting to enter occupational therapy i would definitely want it, it recommend that they explore this the field of occupational therapy so figure out what is it that would be doing in occupational therapy is it disabilities and that kind of area um that i tend to work in it's very challenging it's very complex and as a new grad it's almost uh i don't know whether it's just something you can pick up and just run with i think you need to have a bit of background experience that's more general and broad um or is it my age care or is it just hospital systems and those jobs are very hard to get because so many universities have opened up occupational therapy courses that the jobs aren't necessarily there because we've got also um, a government um, that's looking to constantly reform and think about healthcare and funding because it costs a lot in healthcare. So we are trying to look a bit more upstream as opposed to being reactive. We're trying to be more proactive. So I think that when people enter occupational therapy now, they need to really think about what is that they want to do with that once they're finished and have a bit of an idea and a pathway um, I definitely know when I entered occupational therapy, my interest was actually all I'd really known was the, the recovery of our family friend who had a stroke. So that neuro side of occupational therapy is what I thought I wanted. But until I actually started doing it in placements and learning more about what, what neuro um, meant in occupational therapy, I started to become a little disinterested because it just didn't gel well with what my interests were in the sense of function um so i it it does in in other areas but where my placements were didn't so i think that that exposure hadn't really lined me up for it so i think i'm still glad with the path i've taken but yeah i think that people definitely need to think very hard about what they want to do brilliant well thanks for talking to me reese i really appreciate it uh so uh if you like what you've heard tonight please subscribe wherever you get your podcast make sure you rate and review us the the more popular we are the more we can uh, more possible podcasts we can do um follow us on twitter at no small jobs pod um we also have a facebook page you can like and follow up on uh, find out what guests are coming up and uh if you have anyone who would like to come and chat with me that would be great i'm happy to hear anyone with an interesting career story no matter how old you are if you are retired but have had a very interested career path feel free to send me a message if you have any follow-up questions about ot feel free to post something up on twitter and i will do my best to follow it up and the answers maybe i don't know um but i can certainly ask um and there is a website coming that will have some more information uh but look this is a work in progress if you have any suggestions anything you'd like to know more about feel free to let me know and i will do my best to uh to include it all So uh, thanks for listening. And remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.